Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling rightly the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible line. Uh, we're so glad that you can be with us. If you're joining us for the first time in the next hour, we're taking questions as it relates to God's Word, some issue you're struggling with and trying to understand Scripture, or maybe some uh, personal issue or ministry issue that you'd like some biblical counsel on. If we can be of help, the number locally is 525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877, the call letters of our station, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it in that fashion as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and a number of questions, uh, both left over from a couple of weeks ago and uh, emailed to us, and I'm looking in the phones or Uh, Lighting up right now. We always give preference to live callers, so uh, we'll go ahead and just wait one second to see if anybody is brave enough to go on live. While we're doing that, let me just say tonight, this is Tuesday night, and uh, we will be in Bluffton this evening at our Bluffton campus. And so if you're listening and you're looking for a church home, this would be a great night to come. It will be at 715. Child care is provided. I'll be sharing our core values as a church and answering people's questions the Bluffton campus. Give them directions, Rick. All right. The easiest way to get there is go down Highway 278, Fording Island Road. And then when you get to uh, just about the BMW dealership, look for uh, Coastal Drive. There are signs there that uh, say Community Bible Church now. So just turn down to Coastal Drive is the address. Great. And we do have a live caller. Let's Thanks go to for them. holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling today. I had a question on the roles of a husband and wife in marriage. Yes. Um, my wife is active duty Marine, and for the uh, last two two years, um, I have chosen to stay home to raise our newborn son at the time. He's, he's two, two now and go to school full time. Is that contrary to... Uh, I know in the Bible it says that a man is supposed to provide for his family and this, that, and the other, and a woman is supposed to stay home and raise the children and and things of that nature. Is is that contrary to God's Word? Are we doing something wrong by having our roles reversed for a couple years? Well, it's a good question, and in one sense you pretty much answered it yourself, but I would definitely answer it with uh, some grace seasoned in there. Sometimes people... Uh, come to a place like Community Bible Church. Uh, they've made a lot of financial decisions, a lot of family decisions, and they find Christ as their Savior. Or occasionally they come and they've never really grown much in their relationship with Christ, so they don't understand uh, God's plan as it relates to the family. 
and what has happened in our culture is there was a time 40 or 50 years ago when most women did indeed stay home if they had children to raise those children themselves. Some of them did it out of biblical conviction. Probably most of them did it simply because that's what their mothers and grandmothers did. And so they did it more out of a cultural milieu than out of a deep-rooted biblical thought. Uh, in either case, as we've drifted from the Bible, more and more families have drifted from God's principles. And so we live in a day when the simple teachings of Scripture as it relates to the family are largely unknown. And so when people come to Christ, sometimes they carry a lot of that baggage with them, and uh, they can't easily do some decisions they've made, but they purpose in their heart to begin to change those. So your wife is um, a Marine, I I think I heard you say, and so she can't go to her employer tomorrow and say, hey, I'm out of here. I'm going home to take care of my children. I wish it were that easy. Uh, She'll find herself in the brig and able to take care of no one if she does that. But she needs to have a mindset that is renewed from the Word of God. And a lot of women are out there seeking careers and trying to find significance outside of the home because the world has convinced them that for a woman to stay at home and to raise their children is not significant. It's insignificant. And it's a waste of their time and education and other things when God's Word teaches just the opposite. So God equipped her to take care of that newborn far better than he equipped you. You can't breastfeed the newborn. You're in a situation where you have to uh, put the child in daycare or use utilize babysitters when you, you know, go to school and understand that. Um, but God's ideal would be for her to be at home raising those children. Now, if she doesn't believe that and she's not convinced of that, then you're telling her that might create just a lot of conflict and tension. So together as a couple, you need to really search the scriptures for yourself. One of the things that would be of great help is that we have um, a series of messages that my wife has done over the years. In fact, uh, they have coming up here in September what they call the Mothering from the Heart Marathon. It doesn't sound like your wife will be here for it. It's the first weekend in September, first full weekend in September after Labor Day, Uh, It's a Friday night and all the day on Saturday or till maybe 2 o'clock on Saturday, 2.30. But it will really walk a woman through principles of of mothering and what God actually says. And when your wife saw those principles from the Word of God, she would see that it's virtually impossible for her to live out what God has called a mom to be and to do. So uh, those messages, however, will be available on tape. They'll be posted on our website And your wife would have the opportunity to listen to those. Um, But no, you're on the wrong page. Uh, You guys have reverse roles. You should be the provider. Your wife should be the home worker, raising and nurturing the children. That's God's ideal. People today laugh at it. But if you want what the world has to offer you, then just do what the world does. And what happens very often, because God has created within a woman a nurturing dimension to care for those children is that I know she's deployed now and there's not much she can do, but she'll come back and she'll go to work all day and she'll come home at the end of the day. And because God's created in her a desire for her family and her children, she'll, she'll take on a second job. And with time, uh, people wear down, couples begin to squawk and fight uh, because uh, she's doing two jobs when God's called her to do one really well. 
And out of that exhaustion, the marriage begins to break down. She goes to work. She's under another man's authority. Very often there are men out there who see weak women who are frustrated in their marriage. Uh, There are men who search for such ladies. And before you know it, they're complimenting those ladies. They see someone else always at their best without the pressures of home and family life. And before you know it, there's an affair and the marriage begins to break down and it dissipates and often ends in divorce. And so we have a, a divorce rate of over 50% in this nation. A hundred years ago, one in a hundred people got a divorce. Now approximately 53 out of a hundred get a divorce. Well, what happened? Well, we've abandoned God's principles. We think we're so wise, so smart as a culture. Now, again, I'm not putting you down, but I'm telling you the truth. And uh, I recognize that, you know, many times God's people are new to the faith or they've been saved for a while, but they are untaught in the scriptures and they're just going with the course of the world. And the devil has a plan. And one of the marks and signs of the last of the last days is that men will be truce breakers. They will not keep their word. And one of the most fundamental covenants that men make in this day is between a husband and a wife to stay married. And again, you know, when we violate God's principles, we can break God's laws, but they'll eventually break us. And so the wise person would say, okay, here's where we are. What can we do to fix it? How can I bring my wife home? Okay, she has two more years. Uh, When she's done with her enlistment, she's not going to resign. And in the interim, I'm going to prepare so that I can bring my wife home and and I, I can be the provider for my family. So that's the direction you want to move in. But if you do not have biblical convictions that that's what the Word of God says— Now, you have but quoted that, but to be able to take it chapter and verse and and to see not only what God says, but why he says it. And this is why the Mothering from the Heart Marathon that's coming up in September, if your wife listened to those series of messages, she would see it is impossible for her to do what God has said. God's not just saying stay home. He has a plan for her when she's a worker at home, and she'll see it's impossible for her to really keep those commands and your children suffer, your marriage suffers, everything suffers. So anyway, I appreciate that, brothers, uh, uh, honesty and forthrightness and wanting to find out what's what's real and true. Let's go to our next caller. I think we have someone else waiting. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, a couple of comments and a couple of questions. Uh, I was, uh, I know people have talked over the years about the age of the earth, and I know you've spoken saying that you thought that it was, you know, around 6,000 years, no more than 10. Uh, But I've heard people talk about theories of, you know, to God, uh, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, and they would apply that to how long we have here on the earth you know, being here 6,000 years to 7,000 years being the year of Christ's reign. Uh, I was watching Jack Van Empey this weekend, and he, he was quoting this Jewish rabbi from the 1200s and saying he made some predictions and they've come true. And, of course, he said, you know, he always says, you know, I'm not setting a date, but I think that we are called to look for the signs and, and, and whatnot, and we can recognize the signs the closer we get. Uh, my question is, is he, he made a statement, and it kind of struck me. 
he said this Jewish rabbi, they added up all these numbers, and he was doing his little mathematics, and he said that we have just crossed the 6,000-year mark and are entering the 7,000 years. And I started thinking, I, I thought we've you know, been here more than 6,000. So if you could uh, kind of explain about how long you think we've actually been here, what he, what you think about what he said about crossing the 6,000-year and uh, some of the other things about the theories of the length of time we will be here. Well, it's a good question. Uh, there was a brother in Christ, Bishop Usher, who tried to put a precise date on the time of creation. Uh, he put it at 4004 B.C. Um, he may not have been all that far off. Uh, we We don't have every single detail that we would like in the chronologies of the Old Testament to tell us a year date when God created the heavens and the earth. If we did, you know, we'd all be in agreement, but we don't. We don't have that. But let me just say, I do believe that he was correct in that it's approximately 6,000 years old. It's in that time frame based on the chronology that we do have, but we do not have it so precise, and God probably for a reason didn't give it to us so precisely. Um, so that people wouldn't attempt to try to set dates. What some have theorized is that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and in the seventh day he rested. And they say, well, if a day is like a thousand years, then we finished uh, six days of uh, man living on the earth, and the seventh day, the millennial reign of Christ being a thousand years uh, we must be ready to enter into it. It's an interesting theory, but there's no uh, scripture that teaches you can interpret the Word of God in that fashion. Uh, I do, however, uh, believe that it is a gross error uh, to take the Bible and to read science into it, trying to interpret the Bible through science rather than interpreting science through the Bible. And that's what a number of Christians have done in our day. They want the two to coincide. And while science may have the latest word, they don't have the last word. There are many things in the history of science that have been gross error. In fact, I went through in our course on bibliology, on the infallibility of the Word of God, and I went through many things even in the 20th century that science was saying to be true, which the Bible taught just the reverse. And then I went through a number of things that science ended up affirming, and some of the people who were behind those discoveries said they got the idea from the Word of God. You know, there was a time, of course, uh, to give an extreme example, when it was a common scientific thought to say the world was flat. Of course, Columbus did not embrace that because passages in Proverbs and Isaiah uh, taught that the world was uh, was round. And so believing that, he had no fear that if he sailed far enough that he was not going to fall off the edge of the world. But there have been many scientific theories that people have said this is true. One of our first presidents, uh, in fact, our first president, George Washington, most would say he the reason he died was because of the science of that they were applying to his body to fix his problems, namely to bleed him. 
when some of the Jewish rabbis were saying in that day, no, the life is in the blood. You shouldn't be bleeding people, though that was a common medical technique, you know, a few hundred years ago in our nation. And many people died because of it. Uh, And some would say that that was the reason our first president died. In either case, they recognized the Jewish rabbis that that was a principle antithetical to the word of God. And so they discouraged people and later science found out that they were wrong. So science may have the latest word, but they don't have the last word. And um, again, it's, it's interesting what that rabbi said, but we cannot say that dogmatically. And there's some big assumptions he's making um, but I think a a problem with um, that the devil wants so many people to embrace is that this world has been here for millions and millions of years. And what that does to people's thinking is it puts God way out there that he's really not involved up close and personally where he's engaging the creation that he has made, that it's been going on for millions of years and it's going to continue for millions of years and that there's no real facing with God Almighty. And of course, that's contrary to what the Word of God says. Anyway, I appreciate the caller and the, the question he had and comment. Let's go to our next question or caller. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener, Ginger from Bluffton, would like you to please explain the relationship between David and Jonathan, especially in Second Samuel 1, where it says, David loved him with more than the love of a woman. I know this person writes, it's not speaking of homosexual love, but I need to be able to explain it to someone. We'll get to that question in just a second. We always give preference to live callers, however, and we do have one standing by now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Um, my question for you, Professor Rogie. I just heard the last gentleman talking about creation versus evolution, and that has caused quite a bit of dissension in my household. I believe in creation, um, but I have a daughter-in-law who belongs to the Evangelical Christian Lutheran Church of America, and they seem to believe more in theistic evolution. And I don't really know how to deal with that with the family. Well, it's a, it's a good question. What you might want to do is listen to my early sermons in our Genesis series that are posted online, because that will give you a lot of uh, good ammunition to think your way through this. But here's the problem with theistic evolution. Theistic evolution may be a strange term to some people out there, so let me just define it for the sake of the fact that we have thousands of people listening right now. Theistic evolution says that God uses the process of evolution to make the world. So they try to bleed again science and the Bible together. They say they don't deny that God created the world. They just say that God used the process of evolution to create the world. And of course, there are, there are many problems with it. First and foremost, that's not the picture the Word of God gives. The Word of God describes the creation as taking place in six literal 24-hour days. Uh, Moses, when he comments on Genesis 1 and 2, and of course, evolution takes millions of years for it to happen. But God uses a description of six actual literal days for the world to come into play. And, um, you know, if, if the days of creation are geologic ages, as some try to say, or millions of years, you, you have all kinds of problems. The gospel is undermined, first and foremost, because it puts death and disease and thorn and suffering before the fall. Where if you just read Genesis 1 at face value, 
no one could ever get this idea of millions and millions of years. In fact, uh, in every instance um, in the Word of God, when the word yom, uh, 410 times if I remember, every time the word yom, the Hebrew word for day, is accompanied with a number, it always refers to a literal, physical, actual 24-hour day, period. Um, and so that's not, that's not by accident. And so to take it differently in Genesis 1 and 2 is really to do the scriptures an injustice. Not to mention that when you come to Exodus chapter 20, God gives a divine commentary through the pen of Moses on how he understood the days of creation. So in, Genesis, in Exodus 20 in verse 8, he said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Why so? Well, he says, uh, in it you shall not do any work, not you or your son or your daughter, your male, your female, your cattle, or your sojourner. Why? Because he says, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made made it holy. And so Moses gives as a basis for keeping one in seven days holy, for resting on Saturday the Sabbath, is that that is the pattern that God followed in the creation itself. And so he said God basically, I mean, God specifically created the world in six literal actual days. But to have um, death prior to the fall, which is what theistic evolution does, it, it contradicts what is plainly taught in the Word of God, because the Bible is very clear that when sin entered into the world, death came with it. And so death and suffering and pain, that's all a result of the fall. But in theistic evolution, you have millions and millions of of years of death and suffering and pain uh, ever before man reaches some evolutionary level where he rebels against God. So it goes fundamentally against the very picture of what God says is the reason for death. And for people to embrace it, uh, they have to really play around and basically contradict so many other passages in the Word of God. Uh, Passages like Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul, for instance, makes a comparison between the one act of Adam that brought death and suffering into the world— and the one act of Christ that brought redemption to mankind. One person affected everyone. One person affected everyone. If one is not true, the other is not true. And so there's all kinds of breakdowns in people's uh, thinking, and it really destroys what God God says. So we need, just need to take the Scripture at face value. Um, of course, uh, your, your daughter's a part of a denomination that denies biblical infallibility. Uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, They do not believe in an inerrant, infallible Bible. Now, there are evangelical Christians who do believe in an infallible Bible, and it's possible that she has an evangelical pastor, uh, though I I doubt it because that particular branch of Lutheranism Lutheranism is so far liberal and so far gone that most of the conservative Bible-believing pastors left, and for good reason, because God tells them to leave. And so those who have stayed are either disobedient or they're ignorant of what the Bible teaches about doctrinal separation. 
In either case, she's a part of a denomination that denies the infallibility of the Word of God. So they have no problem with uh, taking uh, the Bible in the manner in which they do. But I would suggest that you listen to the first few messages that I preached, uh, the first four messages in our series on Genesis. And I think that would be a huge help uh, to you. You might also consider um, going to Ken Ham's ministry called Answers in Genesis. And he has some books that are written on a very popular level, uh, basically trying to show that the science actually argues for a young earth and for a literal six-day creation rather than for the theories of evolution. And he does a great job in dealing with uh, some of the objections that a secular mindset has. But remember, evolution was started basically by some people who either said there's no God, or if there is a God, he, he can't do the supernatural. And so if you start with those kinds of premises and you read Genesis 1 and 2, then you have to come up with another explanation. And people who do this are nothing but rebels before God Almighty because they want to suppress the truth of God as seen in his creative hand, as Romans 1 teaches. And so these folks who began with their theories of evolution, when you read of their lifestyle, they're nothing but rebels. Darwin was a rebel against God Almighty. And so, yes, he came up with his theory of evolution because he refused to acknowledge God as God. And then it became, quote-unquote, science, and people accept it today as just being true. Uh, unfortunately, they're not given both sides uh, of the uh, equation, uh, and that's really unfortunate. All right, very good. Uh, we will go back now to that dictate or that emailed question from Ginger in Bluffton, who would like to know, regarding that passage in Second Samuel 1, uh, what exactly is it referring to? She knows it's not speaking of a homosexual love between David and Jonathan, but she needs to be able to explain it to someone. Well, these are these are passages that the uh, Metropolitan Churches of America, as they're called, the Metropolitan Churches, and we have some here in South Carolina. There's one in Greenville. There's one in Columbia. These are the uh, the homosexual churches, and they try to uh, say we're Christians and use the Bible to justify, you know, their lifestyle that God calls an abomination. Um, they'll look at passages in First and Second Samuel that describe the relationship that David had with Jonathan. For instance, in um, here it is, First Kings eighteen in verse one, it says, "Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself." Uh, later on, the text that you're referencing in Second Samuel one. Uh, we read, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. And so people say, well, David loved Jonathan sexually and it was reciprocated and that this is an example of homosexuality. Well, there are many problems with that. First of all, this is not the uh, word for sexual love that's used in the Bible. And there are, there, this is, uh, it's just like in Greek, there are different words that are used to describe different kinds of love. There's the word eros, which in Greek refers to physical sexual love. There's the word phileo 
that refers to uh, family friendship kind of love, which would be what is paralleled here, in which, by the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, that is the word that is used. That's how all the rabbis understood it, contextually and otherwise, that this was not some kind of erotic love that David loved Jonathan sexually. They don't use that word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They use the word phileo. There's a word agapao and so forth. And so there are these different words in Greek that describe different kinds of love. And well, in Hebrew, this is not the word for sexual love. Not to mention that that would plainly contradict God's denunciation of homosexuality. These guys were just good friends. Uh, They sacrificed for each other. If you keep reading in 1 Samuel 18, where I have my Bible open, you you see them uh, sacrificing for each other, caring for each other. When you come to the 19th chapter, you see uh, Jonathan protecting David as a friend because Saul wants to destroy him and kill his life. Um, A little bit later, let me just see here. I think it's uh, in the 20th chapter. Uh, yeah, here it is um, in chapter 20 in verse 41. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times to Jonathan, of course, in the context. And they kissed each other and wept together. And um, so people would say, well, there they are. They're, you know, they're, they're involved sexually. This is not sexual love. There are many parts of the world to this day. When you go to Israel today, you see two men greet each other. They don't give a handshake. They, they, kiss, they kiss each other on each side of the cheek. There, there's nothing sexual about it. And so uh, David cared deeply for Jonathan. And so his, his love for Jonathan that's described in the verse that you asked me to comment on in Second Samuel chapter 1 uh, has nothing to do with sexuality. It has everything to do with fidelity faithfulness, a loyal love. And so you will read, and um, and by the way, you, you see uh, Jonathan making a very interesting statement. Let me see if I can find it real fast here. Yeah, here it is in um, 1 Samuel 23. He said, um, now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. So technically, legally, Jonathan should be king. But spiritually, God had a different plan. God had chosen David to take Saul's place. And Jonathan, who loved the Lord like David did, acknowledged God's plan. So he says, you're going to be king over me. I'm not going to take my father's throne. I'm going to be under you. And so he he had a, a faithfulness to David that in one sense surpassed the, the highest degree of, of conjugal loyalty between a husband and a wife. Uh, they were just truly faithful, faithful friends. And so there's nothing sexual here. And those who try to make it and twist the scriptures to say that, well, to quote the Apostle Peter, they're twisting the scriptures to their own destruction.
525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Wade from Beaufort would like to know whether Tim Keller is an acceptable author to read and study. He's contemplating a study from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Well, let me just say Tim Keller's our brother in Christ, and we'll meet him in heaven, I'm sure. Um, Unless I've been buffaloed and we, we later see that he renounces, uh, you know, the faith or something like that. I don't, I don't think he will. Um, but he definitely is controversial in evangelical circles. Today, people are, are less and less discerning, I think, in terms of who they read. And so while a person may have some really great things to say, if I endorse a person then I'm giving a wholesale endorsement typically to their their life and ministry. So I'm really cautious to do that sometimes. Um, So, for instance, um, Tim Keller, who, you know, believes in salvation by grace alone through faith alone, also believes in theistic evolution. He wrote a book on apologetics called Reason to Believe. And he's commented on that many times. And he, he said that the science teaches theistic evolution. He takes Genesis 1 and 2 as poetry and not as history, and uh, which is a different way in which Jesus understood those passages of Scripture, different from the way Moses understood those passages of Scripture. So he applies a very liberal hermeneutic to, again, make the message palatable. And sometimes that's what we want to do as pastors. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want people not to like us to think, well, we're just a bunch of, you know, narrow, ignorant-minded fundamentalists who, who, who can't think, you know, outside of the box and, and that we shouldn't be respected or, you know, and so we, we twist the scriptures sometimes to make it palatable. So I, I don't appreciate that because when you lose Genesis, you've lost the foundation, you've lost the Bible, you've lost the argument. And it is wrong to interpret the scriptures that way. And he's done the scriptures, in my view, a great injustice. So that saddens me. He's also embraced some uh, books that he has endorsed his church that he's received a lot of criticism on, some Roman Catholic mysticism. I think there was a book they were using at their church called The Way of the Monk. And then they've used in their women's ministries some books that are written by Christian feminists that really don't respect or acknowledge God's model for the Scripture. And so if I like something about Tim Tim Keller and I say, oh, this is a great book, buy it, then people assume across the board that I'm giving endorsement to his teaching and his person. So I, I, I can't do that. Um, and what he has done in his view of Genesis has created more damage than it's done help. In his book on apologetics, in my opinion, is extremely weak, and there are many other books that have been written that are far superior than the book that he's written, Reason to Believe. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Pastor Brooke, I have a question regarding... um, the passage where the gentleman brings his son and to Jesus and asked him if he could cast out the demon and that his disciples could not do so. And Jesus responds with, you wicked and perverse generation, how long should I be with you and put up with you? I'm, I'm trying to understand the context of, of where that where that's coming from, and I, I really don't understand that, that passage where Jesus was calling that generation perverse and unbelieving. It, it's a little confusing to me. 
Well, indeed, the Jewish people in his day were unbelieving. And uh, Paul will comment and give commentary in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says Jews look for a sign uh, when he describes the meaning of the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus indicted the people of his day with. He said an evil and an adulterous generation looks for a sign. And so they were miracle mongers. They were miracle seekers when they had enough revelation where they should have rested in that revelation. I'm not saying that revelation is not based on reason. God, for instance, uh, makes it very, very clear that he authenticates his messengers either through fulfilled prophecy or by the miraculous. Of course, the miraculous was not a consistent thread all the way through the Old Testament. There were just times at great points in Israel's history where God did miracles. Moses did miracles, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph never did a miracle. Uh, Joshua did miracles for a short time once they got into the promised land, and then miracles dried up for hundreds of years until two prophets come on the scene, Elijah and Elisha. And they do miracles, calling in the nation to the repentance, and then hundreds of years go by. None of the prophets did a miracle. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, none of those men ever did a miracle. Now, their works were authenticated as a prophet, but they never did miracles. And so what I'm trying to say is that they had ample evidence, either through the authentication of the Old Testament law, to believe what they should have believed about Messiah. The prophets had specifically spelled out what Messiah would look like, what his life would be like, what his ministry would like be like, and what miracles Messiah would do. He would open blind eyes. He would unstop deaf ears. And they refused to acknowledge they wanted more proof and more proof when God had given them countless proof. It's much like in Luke 16 when the rich man dies and he goes to hell and he said, well, if you could just send somebody from the dead to my brother's house, they would listen and they'd repent. And Jesus's response in the parable was, if, if, if they don't listen to the scriptures, neither would they listen to someone who was raised from the dead. And so the scripture has been exalted above the name of God, the Lord says in his Psalms. And, and they had the scripture to believe, and God had given ample proof to show that the scripture was reliable, but they only wanted more miracles. And so it led down a trail that led to all kinds of spiritual apostasy and problems right down to their families and demon possession in their children. And of course, the disciples are also rebuked because they should have been able to have dealt with this, but they they didn't. In either case, um, it was an unbelieving generation to summarize uh, what the Lord said and what the New Testament epistles refer to in places like 1 Corinthians 1 where he says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So God's not opposed to doing miracles is what I'm trying to say. So are the words Jesus says about this evil and adulterous generation always seeking miracles has to be put in the context, the broader context of what God had already 
revealed about himself. I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one. They're, they're stacking up. Let's see if we can get through some more in the next 15 minutes. And if you want to call, we'll still take some live calls. A lot have been dictated. 525-1859. Dave from Lebanon, Connecticut writes, I recently heard the sermons on living with a difficult wife in your marriage series. I was struck by a statement that you said that it was uh, it has uh, somewhat clarified my confusion of priorities. You see, I'm a teen leader in my local church and recently got engaged to a God-fearing woman who desires to serve with me in the church. I am excited, but I'm concerned as the pastor has strongly pushed for me to take on more responsibilities, such as worship leader and eventually assistant pastor. And he also desires for my fiancé to take on the role of teaching the younger children almost immediately after we're married. One of the things I am concerned about is whether or not I can devote enough time to our marriage yet glorify God in serving in the church. As I have read and prayed, I see responsibilities to not only make God first in my life, but to also fulfill my role to her as a future husband. How do you balance this? How can I serve God as in Deuteronomy 6, 5, yet give time to her? I see great men of God so involved in serving God, yet some of them neglect their marriage. Well, it's a good question, and it's a question that you need to be asking now. Uh, What I would suggest you do is go and just have kind of a heart-to-heart with your pastor, you know, the Bible says, speak the truth in love and express to him what some of your concerns are. There are indeed uh, never enough hours in a day to do all that people expect you to do. Uh, if you're in full-time ministry, you can work 15 hours in a day and then someone complains, well, why didn't you call me when, you know, and pray with me when I had this need? We already prayed with 10 people that day and you counseled seven and it's like there's just one of you and there's just so many hours in the day and they have no idea what you do. Some people think pastors work one hour a week on Sunday mornings from 11 to 12, you know, and they have no idea what the pressures are and the fact that it never ends. It never ends. And so you need to balance certainly your home life with your ministry life. And so you have to have your priorities in order. First, your relationship with the Lord, then your your wife and your your children, if God chooses to bless you with children, and then your ministry. Um, and so when you think of leaders in the church and God looks for quali- qualified people, it says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so when God looks for qualified leaders in the church, one of the first places he looks at is a man's family life. What is his family life like? Because if he can't function well in a limited role of responsibility, then you don't want to broaden that responsibility. If he can't function as a leader in his home, why give him leadership in the church? And if his Christianity doesn't work in the home... Certainly don't export it into the church because, it again, it's a formula for disaster. And so sometimes a man's ministry usurps the time that he needs to give to his family. There are times, like in any job, as in ministry, where it's intensive and you're giving 110%. And then there are times when you have to pull back because you just did a 75-hour week and give some more time the next week to your family. So there's, you know, um, 
it's not a nine to five job is what I'm trying to say. There are highs and lows and the schedule changes and you adjust as you move through it. But I think too, it's equally important that you have this conversation with your uh, pastor and say, well, what really are your expectations? You know, do you expect me to work, you know, seven nights a week and, you know, and does he have a valuable picture of family? Some pastors don't, and they've been total failures. And now they're going to help set you up for a repeat performance. And two, your wife, he may recognize she has some giftedness with children, but remember, they've hired you. They haven't hired your wife. Now, she is just like any other church member in one respect, in that we're all called to some kind of ministry in the local church. Be you a pastor's wife or be your husband the president of the United States. If you're a born-again Christian, God's called you to a ministry in his local assembly. And that ministry should reflect the gifts and the abilities that you have. Uh, She may not be gifted to work with young children. Maybe she would do better... um, you know, uh, having a hospital ministry with uh, sick women in the church. I don't know. A lot depends on her giftedness. And so sometimes churches just look for a warm body and a need in their mind constitutes a call. And since you're, you know, alive and breathing, they'll recruit you to the position when you might not be the right person. And certainly in that first year of marriage, especially, you need to give some focus time to those adjustments. That's not to say that, you know, you're not working a 40 to 50 hour a week, but still, you know, you need to give some focused time to your marriage. Uh, God recognized this in Israel's history. When a man was married for a full year, he was dismissed from military duty so that he wasn't continually away from the home. And so the Lord recognized a principle that we need to follow if we're going to have healthy marriages. So start with your face-to-face with your pastor. And if he doesn't respect that, then maybe what you need to do is uh, seek a ministry position in another assembly. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us as Anna from Savannah has. And uh, our address there is tbl at wagp.net. She writes, do you believe a born-again believer can fall into a state of unrepentant sin to where they are considered wicked in the sight of God? No. um, When a person is genuinely saved, God has declared them righteous. He has imputed the righteousness of Christ to our lives. When you're saved, God not only forgives you, but he imputes to you the very righteousness of his son. Sometimes people describe justification just as if you never sinned. Uh, That's only half of it, and it's a quite inadequate uh, definition. If all God did was forgive you, you'd die and go to hell because you need more than forgiveness. You need the holiness and righteousness of Christ, of God himself. And so God not only forgives you, he imputes Christ's righteousness to you. Maybe a better definition of justification is just as if you had always obeyed in every facet, mind, will, and emotion. Uh, That's really the status that God gives us when we are justified. So even the weakest Christians in the New Testament are referred to as saints. When Paul opens his letter to the uh, church at Corinth, which if you know anything about the Corinthians, they're one of the more carnally 
uh, expressed churches in the New Testament. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, set apart is what the word means, set apart in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Uh, Holy ones literally is what the word hagios means. Uh, There are saints, they're holy ones. So sainthood is not based on performance. It's based on position. And you're sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus. It's your identification in Christ by which God can call you a saint. And I know in the church I grew up in, if someone had lived a really special life and usually did a few miracles, then they were canonized as saints. But in God's economy, every child of God is a saint. Now, a Christian can indeed fall into sin. Uh, But even if he falls into sin, God still views him as a child of God. If a Christian persists in sin, he will experience the divine disciplinary hand of God. And so later in the same letter in 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 30, where you had some Christians who were participating in gluttony and some even in drunkenness, he said, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, or you could say they've died. So God disciplined them. Some were weak physically, some were sick physically, and some God had taken home to be with Jesus. If a person persists in sin, God deals with them. If a little boy goes to a birthday party and he pulls the little girl's pigtail, the mother will say, now, Bobby, don't do that. You better not do that, you know. And, and the next thing you know, five minutes later, he kicks another little girl in the shins. She may take him out and say, listen, you can't do that. I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to spank you. And, and then uh, 15 minutes later, the cake comes out and he dumps it on the floor. She says, that's enough. We're going home. And so sometimes, you know, when God deals with his people, there is a point of no return where God says, enough is enough. I'm taking you home. He loves you too much. He doesn't want his name mocked because you are a true believer and he's not going to allow it to continue to be mocked. And certainly he doesn't want you to miss the best plan that God has. God is long suffering and patient, even with his own people. But some of God's people don't really revere and fear God in a healthy way in which we should. Um, and that is quite unfortunate. Good question. I appreciate it. We could spend a lot more time on it, but I hope that helps. Anna from Savannah. Nice ring to it. It does indeed. I think we've got time for one more. Suzanne from St. Helena Island writes, My daughter converted to Mormonism, then married a Mormon. Now she's repented and accepted Christ and realizes the wrong path she has taken. She no longer wants to attend Mormon services, nor does she want to raise their daughter in the Mormon church. To complicate matters, her husband works for the Mormon church in Salt Lake City. How do I counsel her? Should she continue to attend the Mormon church, or should she tell her husband of her belief in salvation? All right, let me let me respond to that. That's a, that's a good question and a fair question, and I thank the Lord that your daughter has indeed found Christ as her Savior. She's in an awful predicament right now, and that probably what may happen is her husband will abandon her. He will divorce her. This often happens in Mormonism when a woman ends up embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and renounces the Mormon faith is the husband will then renounce her. And so um, 
What's your responsibility? Well, you, if you really know Christ, are unashamed of him. And so you don't hide your faith under the bushel. You let it shine. And you begin to pray for your husband. You show him the love of Christ. You be a great wife to him. Um, and if he will stay with you, stick with him. That would be Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, um, plainly to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Meaning this is something that I'm saying as an apostle that Jesus never commented on. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And if a woman has an unbelieving husband, which is the situation before us, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Why? Because he says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified or set apart through her believing husband. He's not saved by her. No one can be saved for someone else. But her godly influence can result in his conversion. And so you want to be able to uh, be well-versed in responding to the objections that you might have and prayerfully, um, you know, ask God to bring him to the same realization of who he is. There's a great website. I think it's called Born Again Mormon. And uh, that gentleman was a uh, Mormon for 25 years and had progressed through the church as a leader. They hate him in Utah because he has a a Sunday television show where he dismantles Mormonism on a weekly basis. In either case, he has some great stuff on his website, and that might be a good resource for your daughter um, to be able to respond to questions that her her husband is going to have. Um, He obviously has his employment there. And But let me just say, let me just create a worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is that he dumps her. And again, God will be with her. He will not forsake her. But Jesus made it very clear that this is something that sometimes happens, that the enemies will be the very members of your household, a husband against his wife, a son against his father, a father against his daughter, and so forth. Jesus made that plain. Sometimes that is the cost of following the Lord Jesus. Well, we're out of time for today. Again, tonight at 7.15 in Bluffton. You can go to cbcbeaufort.us for directions to our Bluffton campus. Oh, Community Bible Church. Of, uh, uh, give it again, Rick. It's communitybiblechurch.us. .us. And for directions and details, tonight at 715, if you're looking for a church home, Thursday night here in Buford at 715, child care provided in both places. I'll be sharing our core values. And if you're not sure of your salvation, you ought to definitely come. This will be extremely helpful. It will be helpful to believers as they look for a church home. We're out of time. Have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.